This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 555 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Paul Tiller. Now, Paul has an incredibly powerful story, not only his own personal journey working in search and rescue as a veteran firefighter teaching swift water rescue, but also the very powerful story of his former wife, Linda, and her battle with ALS. So you will hear a host of topics from... And then ultimately how he developed HEAL, a nutritional supplement to help not only patients on palliative care, but everyone get the micronutrients that they need for, but everyone to be able to get, the, but everyone to get the micronutrients, but everyone so they can get the nutrition that they need on a daily basis. So before we get to this very powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 555 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Paul Tiller. Enjoy.
Well, Paul, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. My honor, James. I'm really grateful to be introduced to you and, and what you're doing with uh, Beyond the Shield. Absolutely. And uh, I want to say thanks to Seb as well, Lavoie. So he connected us, another insane <laughs> specimen who's actually coming on again in a couple of weeks. He's been through his own crucible at the moment. But uh, so, so just starting with that. So how did you guys meet? Um, well, Seb is somebody I've known for uh, well over 10 years now. Uh, my son at the time was 15, just turning 16. And I had approached him to see, you know, what, what is it that you want to do next with your fitness? What is something that we can perhaps do together? Cause I found the best way to spend time with my son was to find the things that he liked and adopt them into my own life. Um, and at the time he had been playing a high level soccer, uh, and decided that he wanted to transition into something else. So I asked around, I had some friends in the community. They said, Oh, you should look at CrossFit. And Oh, by the way, there's this guy, Seb. Um, you know, he's got a military and police background as well. They knew it, that I had that um, military and, and um, fire background. And they said, this is the guy you got to talk to. So we got introduced to him and at his gym at the time was called uh, Sheepdog CrossFit. Um, my son and I started there in uh, the latter part of 2010. Um, we haven't looked back. So um, he took my son somewhat under his wing. Um, Seb doesn't have any sons. So um Paul just really connected with Seb on that level. And, and we just developed a really great friendship as a, as a group. And uh, it's been an amazing community. I've been a part of ever since. And uh, yeah, Seb, Seb's continued to bring riches into our life. Even with all of his challenges, he's introduced both of us to jujitsu and um, some other things in his life that he's, he shared with us. So uh, just a really great guy, um, salt of the earth. So very grateful for Seb for sure. Yeah, no, amazing human being. I can't wait to to get him back on and hear the incredible physical and mental journey he's gone through. Yeah, yeah, it's been a, it's been a real um, challenging thing to to observe because you want to help people when they're when they're going through that stuff. Uh, and having you know seen him um, just recently, and um, I just rolled with him actually just the other day, and uh, yeah, he's, he's he, it's it's hard. It's hard for him, but he's committed. And I think that that's the key. He's facing a challenge head on. And I have no doubt that he will overcome it because that's just the type of personality he is. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So. Absolutely. Well, well, people listening, if you listen to the next uh, interview with Seb Lavoie, you'll find out what we're talking about. So I'll leave that little cliffhanger Absolutely. there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Good one. <laughs> so, uh, so I love to start chronolo chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, I was actually born uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Um, my, both of my parents uh, immigrated to Canada from Europe. My dad's from Germany and my mom is from, from Dublin, Ireland. Um, and when I was about two, uh, they parted ways. And I think for me, that's when life started to get interesting. Um, my mom came from a family of 15, uh, had a lot of her own personal challenges. And I think it attracted a little bit of a chaos into her life. And um, my stepdad, um, who she had already met when I was two, um, was an amazing guy, um, but also full of his own challenges. And uh, it, it made for an interesting life. Um, you know, I would say that. Um, my childhood was full of, of ups and downs, lots of, lots of chaos and having a stepdad who did two tours in Vietnam and had a lot of his own issues. Um, 
created created a life of adversity. And I would say the best way to describe that man was his comfort zone was chaos. Things always had to be broken. Things always had to be torn apart. He wasn't happy, comfortable. He'd much rather sleep on the floor and uh, know there was no heat on than actually have a, a stable household. So if that's a snapshot. Um, coming from that, uh, I had 13 schools by the time I graduated. Um, moved around a lot. Although I was born in Vancouver, I didn't spend many of my years uh, or my childhood in Vancouver. Most of them were spent in the States. Um, I think one of the schools that I went to in Alaska, I was there for two months. I had another school in Michigan where I attended maybe a month and a half. So there was lots of this move around um, mentality. And even with all that, I still managed to spend three years at the same high school um, in rural northern Michigan, which is where I actually graduated. Um, and after that, um, a short return to BC, uh, decided to join the U.S. military. So um, I ended up going into the U.S. Navy with a friend of mine on a buddy program, an, an amazing guy into himself. He actually, we joined uh, together. I went into uh, as an airman apprentice and he went in as a, a deck seaman. Uh, he's still in the Navy. He's actually a commander in, in the Navy now. So oh, he, wow. he crossed over. Yeah, he worked all the way up through the enlisted ranks to uh, chief or senior chief was offered a commission, crossed over um, to the officer's ranks and has now worked himself all the way up to commander. And his next posting is he actually going to be running a naval base. So um, that was a really, yeah, to see him progress and blossom out of the, you know, a similar set of challenges. We, there was a group of us that uh, in Michigan that um, our parents weren't perhaps as attentive as they could have been, but we took care of each other. And, um, so that was probably part of the reason that we went into the military together. I went a slightly different direction. Um, I had a stronger interest in special warfare and those types of things. Um, actually, I had an order to go to BUDS um, coming out of boot camp, um, but my citizenship created some issues for me. I was a Canadian citizen at the time. So um, that transitioned for me and um, work in the direction of becoming a, a rescue swimmer with the Navy, um, a program um, that I'm you know, proud to say I was a part of, but it, it kind of set the tone for me. Uh, I didn't stay in beyond my enlistment. Um, I found that at that time, they weren't recognizing dual citizenship in the United States. I was still a Canadian citizen, not a U.S. citizen. And the requirements for me to kind of move in the direction that I wanted to, to work uh, with special warfare and, and going in the direction of Navy SEAL. Um, it just would have required me to renounce my Canadian citizenship. And I guess it just was, it was a, it was a hard bite, I guess, at that time for me to walk away from something that was, is, I was so proud to be American, but at the same time, I was very proud to be Canadian. And, uh, you know, it just ended up that I, I got out of the service and um, at that time, come back, could come back to Michigan. Um, to see my family. My plan was to come back to Vancouver after um, leaving the service. Um, and that's when I, I met up with Linda again. And um, Linda was somebody actually that I had went to high school with. She was home on um, break from school over Christmas. Uh, I was there to see my family. And um, shortly after that visit, go back into the Navy. I was, I was then getting out in February of that following year. And um, yeah, we had connected over, over the holidays 
And um, I don't know, we did, there was a click, right? And uh, it drew me back. It drew me back to Michigan after I got out of the service. And a month later, she was pregnant. And oh, <laughs> history, history is, is, is moves from there, right? So life grabbed a hold of me and um, extremely grateful to say that we have had two children together um, and moved back to Vancouver uh, when my daughter was uh, about six months. My son was born here in, in Vancouver. She, she was born and raised in Michigan. And uh, we started to build a life out here. So, um, yeah, I'll pause there. That, that puts us at probably around 1995. All right. Well, I'm going to take you way back because, <laughs> okay. like sure. I said, I, I love to, you know, explore the earlier life and then walk you back through. But just as a side note, I got my citizenship here and the UK um, still has dual citizenship. And the U.S. Yeah. was like, you're renouncing everything. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> I still yeah. have two passports. Like, I love this country. I love the U.K. I love the whole of the planet. So, funny enough, you know, yeah. it's okay to... But, yeah, that was an interesting paradox because on one side, they're like, oh, you, you turn your back on everything. And they're like, no, but if you tell me that's what I need to say today, then, yes, I've served this country. I love this country. I live in this country. But, no, I was born and raised in the U.K. That's also another home of mine. I'm greedy. I like two of them. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, you know, I'm, and I guess that you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners um, are in the in the United States, um, and that would be understandable. That's where your podcast is, and uh, you know, my my commitment to my relationship with with United States and and my relationship to my my time in the service, um, it really mattered to me. You know, I, I have a I come from a family that like my stepdad served. He was actually a CB in the U.S. Navy um, during the time that he was in Vietnam, and um, my time overseas um, towards the end of the, the tail end of the Gulf War and then, you know, um, drug ops off the coast of Florida, um, helping with Hurricane Andrew. You know, I mean, we were an extremely busy um, ship. I was on a, an LPD class called the Ponce. And that was actually a really cool ship in that um, that's where I got exposed to a lot of really, really uh, cool operators. So um, we were amphib Navy. And so we carried uh, troop Marines. Marine Force Recon, Navy SEALs, and special boat units. And we also had a flight deck. So a very dynamic platform. Um, and, uh, but we were at sea a lot. We were, we were, we were out there working all the time because that's definitely a working part of the, the, the Navy for sure. So uh, a, a, really, a really cool experience for me. And, and I, I think that it, it set a bar for the rest of my life. Because I, like I said, I came from a very challenging childhood um, and albeit I drew a lot of, uh, skill sets and, and ability, uh, to overcome adversity at the same time, though, I didn't have a whole lot of, uh, belief in myself because I didn't feel like my parents had chosen well for me. So my mental, my mental health probably wasn't as strong as my physical perspective, you know, my ability to do wasn't really matched with what I thought now what I know now to be a, a more healthier mindset that our value isn't determined by what we do. Our value is just determined by the fact that we are, that, that every human being is of equal human worth. Well, my childhood taught me that my value was based on what I had accomplished because I didn't have people choosing well for me. I had to go out and earn uh, good choices. I had to create a value for someone to see me as being worth. And my time in the military um, I excelled. And it, it, at that time anyways, gave me a sense of confidence 
um, to go out and start to build the next phase of my life. So I'm extremely grateful for that, that period of time. But again, a very challenging time. Well, so going back to that for a second, one thing that really, I mean, I had my eyes like dragged wide open when I started this and realized how many of us in uniform had some pretty significant, horrendous elements of trauma in their early life. A lot more, you know, alcoholism, generational trauma, especially when you have World War II vets and then ripple effect there and then Vietnam vets ripple effect as well. So I'm just opening the door. I'm not trying to, you know, push you in any direction, but you know, what yeah, were you seeing? Yeah. So if, if you want to, yeah. what were you seeing? Um, was your dad ever talking about anything? that he brought from the war mentally and then and then parallel to that what were you experiencing as a child growing up in that household right right well I'll, I'll answer that question um quickly by also saying that i understand that generational thing because my my dad's actually from germany and my opa or my german grandfather actually was a submariner during world war ii and my dad um born in 1945 uh, post-World War II Germany, actually spent a good portion of his life in a um, an orphanage because they couldn't afford to take care of him. So, you know, yeah, 100% that probably carried forward into his life that then had an influence on me. My, my mom, I, I somewhat mentioned her coming from a home of 15 children. And then my, the introduction of my stepdad, um, you know, I, I, he didn't talk about it at all to be completely honest. Uh, I think he was a perfect example of PTSD. Um, and he surrounded himself, himself with people who I think he felt understood him. Um, he was gone all the time. He worked all the time. And if he wasn't working, um, he was hunting or he was spending time with his buddies uh, who were on this fringe of the Michigan militia and into all the same kind of things that he was in. But I can remember when Desert Storm kicked up, all these guys went down to the recruiting office. They were signing up. It was unbelievable. Like I, just from nowhere, when that, uh, all that started to kick up in, in the Middle East, these guys were like, we're not having another generation of our young men suffer. We know how to do it. We'll go down. I mean, it was completely like emotionally uh, charged response. It, it wasn't logical that these 40 and 50 year old guys were going to go over and, and serve again. But that was the, that was that innate response that they had. And I think for him um, personally and how that, how that influenced my life. And, and I talked about it there for a moment is that he, he thrived in chaos because even before going into the, the military, he came from a very chaotic uh, traumatic childhood in, in his own right. I, I didn't get a ton of it from him personally, but I, I know enough people talked to his family and understood that uh, um, what he was doing for us was still better than what he had. You know, it, it's that, you know, I'm, I'm doing the best of the skills that I have. And uh, that's the way I, I view him um, as somebody that loved me enough to do better than what he got. But at the same time, that still probably wasn't what we'd expect would be the average, the law of averages for a, a healthy uh, childhood and um, growing up in a, in a dynamic of, of feeling worth, you know, the, his, his, his challenges definitely trickled into our lives and um, keeping things chaotic, you know, that Maslow's hierarchy of needs of food, clothing, and shelter you know, really made it challenging to develop 
you know, if you, you think about higher thinking that comes out of being stable in your, you know, your, your house, you know, you've got food, you've got a place to live. You're now I can go read a book. Now I can, you know, work on my higher, my higher education. Um, for me, I started working when I was 14, you know? So the things that mattered to me were, yeah, surviving. <laughs> if I wanted to have a little bit of money in my pocket, I had to go earn it. And the other things that mattered to me is that, you know, I wanted to be connected to people. And some of the ways I did that was sport. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, I wrestled in high school. The one place that I spent a little bit of time, that was the sport that I was able to um, be a part of. That didn't require years of, you know, build up of experience. Like football is something that you start at a very young age and you grow into it. Wrestling was something I could just come right out of the gates and do. Um, but, you know, I guess where it left me was feeling like, I got to work for everything that I want to have. I got to earn it because people aren't going to do it for me. Um, but if it's, if it gets tough, I'm going to be okay. Cause I had a stepdad that taught me how to survive, but it really left me feeling like the only way I was going to have a value is if I went out and earned it. Kids weren't really worth that. Was, this was the, the, the narrative in my head. They weren't worth good choices. Packs of cigarettes were more important than groceries in my house. You know, um, Christmas didn't matter, but having me walk into town to to buy cigarettes from my mom did. It's just you know what I mean. It just created a very confusing uh, value system in my mind, right? And then I surrounded myself with people who were not too dissimilar that had their strengths and their weaknesses, and collectively we were kind of like our own little gang that took care of each other. Um, and you're right. I mean, if I look at the, the guys that I was in the military with, the numbers of them that were um, either there because they got in trouble with the law and the judge gave them a choice, um, or they came from, you know, um, low-income, um, you know, backgrounds. Their family didn't have money. They didn't believe that they had um, an opportunity. And what was interesting for me is that um, from a perspective of what I, the feedback I got in school, was that I wasn't smart. So, you know, I was kind of a, 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 B, a, a kind of a C-level student, small town, career counselor, um, kind of looked at my grades. Um, and just one second, please. Sorry. Angela, that background noise is like super distracting for me. Do you doing that stuff? Please. Thanks. Um, and so when, what I didn't realize at the time is that I was actually an undiagnosed dyslexic. And so at the time, that wasn't even really something that I got talked a lot about. I just wasn't somebody that did super well um, with certain types of learning styles. So I'd get A pluses in physics and applied stuff. But if you asked me to do algebra, I failed. If you asked me to do English, writ like writing, um, writing things out or, or interpreting that way, I didn't do very well. So computation speed associated with reading. But the, the point of it is, is that um, here I was, I came up through this thing of people decide what my value is. And someone just told me that my value wasn't good enough to go to university. So you better find something else to do. And I think that that happens a lot to the types of people you're describing. They're actually told that they should just go do something else because they're not good enough to do this thing. I was. You're not smart. Yeah. Right. Like what's the relatable? I mean, 
Um, what's interestingly enough is Linda actually had a dual major in elementary and special education that got interrupted by her pregnancy. But later on, she was like, you know, you need to get tested. She was, I think you're dyslexic. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah. And so I looked into it. I, 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 you know, kind of entertained the idea. I did some IQ tests and then actually found out that, um, <laughs> and, and this is the funny thing, um, with the exception of computation speed, I actually scored genius on an IQ test. Really? But I had people, but yeah, but I had people telling me that I wasn't smart. So you are what you believe. That, that's the whole point of me saying all of that is that somebody told me what I was. I was raised in an environment where I believed that. It kind of, it set me up for someone else to des- design my life for me based on what they thought because I would believe it if they were an influential person. Um, and so instead of even applying for university, I just went right into the military and that was the path I chose. So um, your beliefs truly do determine your future. 100%. Now, with I mean, you said you found yourself in, in the Navy. Prior to that, when you were a school age, did you have any other career dreams or was that something that you had been thinking about already? Oh, man. Well, I liked design when I was in school. I liked drafting. Um, my um, biological father was actually a sheet metal fabricator with a design background, um, did a lot of, in the early years of CAD design. And so I was always this, you know, there was a, a, a child in me that always wanted to connect with my biological father who lived in Vancouver. I was in Michigan at the time. And I really enjoyed drafting and some of those things. So, you know, there was a part of me that was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll get into something design related. Um, but I think as I started to grow more into like that 16, 17 and into 18 years old, when it was becoming apparent that I was going to have to take care of myself, those just seemed like pipe dreams to me. Like, how was I going to go to school? I wasn't smart enough. How was I going to pay for any of it? I need to do something where I've got some structure and some stability, right? And, you know, the military had all of that. You know, I didn't have to worry about where I was going to sleep. I didn't have to worry about what I was going to eat. I had to show up and work hard. And if I did a really good job, someone was going to like me and I'd have an opportunity to excel. And that's what I did. So people of authority, uh, at least the ones that I would give that respect to, had huge amounts of influence in my life. So, you know, um, once I stepped into that world and I saw, hey, you know what? If I if I'm willing to work hard and I and I and I pay attention and I'm not a complete fuck up like a lot of the guys that are <laughs> here with me because arguably there was a lot of guys that just really weren't happy about being there. Um, you can you can perform and excel, and then I guess that was something that I took uh, away from my time in the service is that if I worked hard and the right people saw that that I was going to get somewhere in life. Yeah, well, it sounds like you had, you know, an incredible experience in the short amount of time. And it's not not short, but, you know, in, in that one enlistment. Um, talk to me about the the search and rescue swimmer role, because that's something you don't hear too much about. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a lot less common uh, conversation for sure. So um, in the Navy, there's two different types of search and rescue swimmers. Um, there's uh, the ones that are attached to helicopter squadrons. So if you saw the movie Top Gun and you see the guy in the helicopter comes out and jumps out and saves Tom Cruise and his co-pilot from the, the crashed aircraft, 
Um, that's a that's a squadron based um, rescue swimmer, and then every ship has to have a minimum of two rescue swimmers on board uh, for man overboard or for any of the things that you might come across relating to people in the water. Um, so that program is pretty intense. Um, you have to apply for the program. It's not something that you can just sign up for. It's, it's similar to any of the other, you know, special warfare programs in, in the military. You don't, um, you don't sign up for that at the recruiting office. You, you go into the service and then you qualify for the program. So um, there's a physical test. Obviously you have to get endorsement from your command. Um, and then um, once you do that, if you pass the medical screenings, you do another physical screening. And if you get through that physical screening, you're invited to, the program and that that program at the time was hosted in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, but really, you know, from a from a position of how many people get there and then how many people leave, it's probably not a lot of uh, a lot different than say going through buds. The attrition rate is very high. I think when I started, um, thirty five percent of the guys finished that started the program with me. Um, it's not about actually making people rescue swimmers those programs are built on attrition. It's, it's actually designed to weed out the people that just aren't going to be able to cut, to pull it off, you know, right from the very beginning with those first physicals you do. So, um, and yeah, they're, you're, you're, <laughs> they're almost drowning you. So <laughs> to be able to get to that, you know, deep end of the pool, I, I like that analogy um, and know where your edge is really what that's it's doing is it's testing you physically, mentally, and emotionally around what it is that you're willing to do to get the job done. Uh, and that, again, probably why that short period of time, my one enlistment gave me so much value and was such a gift to me is it really showed me what I was able to accomplish if I put my mind to it. It, it showed me that I actually had a, a much higher value than I believed um, when I came into the service. And I think for a lot of young men and women, it does that it gives them that structure and that opportunity to get really good feedback. And if you want to, you can really accelerate. Not everybody's going to become a rescue swimmer. It's not everybody's going to be an Navy SEAL. Not everybody's going to go into special boat units. Not everybody's going to be a pilot. It just isn't going to happen for everybody. Um, but that was just the experience and the way it worked out for me. So I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity. And then, you know, through that meet some amazing guys, like the numbers of, team members that I met um, on deployment and uh, to, to even just have a, a glimpse into that world um, and the level of commitment that these people put into their uh, daily endeavors. It's, um, it was an honor. There's a lot of honor in all of that. So it, it translates into the fire service as well. Extremely honored to work with the people that I work with. So. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the road into the fire service, but just before we do, you talked about the drug smuggling element and Hurricane Andrew. So were there yeah. any stories from either of those two positions that you held before we move on? Um, I mean, those are deployments. So, you know, I just had a, I was on a, a the type of vessel I was on was very um, capable of dealing with lots of different types of situations. Um, LPD class was actually designed for Vietnam. Um, it Fully, fully manned, carried about 2,500 people, but the inside of the, the, the vessel was hollow. It was a well deck, so it could ballast down, had a, a, a gate that would open at the back. They could launch amphibious tanks, hovercraft, all sorts of things out of the inside of it. And then on the, on the top was a flight deck, 
Um, so, you know, lots of helicopter operations could take place, a lot of vertical replenishment work, um, lots of troop carrying. And then when we were fully manned, we could also, by design, get within probably, you know, 100 to 200 feet of the shore sometimes, depending on how deep the water was. We were, we were, we were a, we would get pretty close was the, the goal of it. Where is most fleet Navy stays hundreds of miles away from the shore, we would actually get close so that we could deploy troops. So we carried a lot of Marines. And then, uh, like I think I already mentioned, um, we had Navy SEAL teams on board, uh, special boat units. Oftentimes, we would have a, a helicopter squadron attached. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it put us in the position of being able to do all sorts of great stuff. So um, with Hurricane Andrew, obviously, there was, a, there was a, um, a need for support. So they actually brought us down into the Port of Miami. We were there for about, I believe, 90 days. And all we basically did is just vertical replenishment. We were just helicoptering because I worked on the flight deck as well. Uh, we were just vert repping uh, goods and food and water. And um, we got involved in some of the cleanup, you know, cleaning some of the schools, schools and different buildings that needed to be um, cleaned up in preparation for recovery from that. And then the drug ops was a, was a joint venture thing with the Coast Guard. So it was, it was one of these hush-hush type deals where we went down there and nobody kind of knew we were there because you don't want anyone to know you're floating around waiting for drug smugglers. But we were running an interception uh, type protocol there for about, again, it was another 90-day window where we were just sitting out at sea um, doing that work. So it, lots of interesting opportunity, but that, you know, it, it, was, it was the job. And, and amphibious Navy, they get a lot of that type of stuff. So. Um, yeah beautiful cool well, stuff. well like you said that takes us to 95 as we get that right when so, you when so, you met linda we went back to see linda so 94 um is when i when i went with the the, the summer or sorry i would say the christmas of 93 into 94 i came home for that i wasn't actually out of the military yet um came home over the holidays and i hadn't seen linda since high school we graduated in 90 and um yeah it was just a, a chance opportunity click we had known each other um obviously when we were in in high school together and um one thing led to the another and and just had a strong interest in seeing her again so came back and um like a lot of people life takes you by the the seat of the pants and um before you knew it i had a baby on the way so um probably not if I, if I was to actually think about the psychology around it, it was probably my comfort zone because that brought a lot of chaos into my life. And I was good at, I was good at overcoming adversity and, and I was good at, you know, dealing with challenges and, um, albeit I don't think I consciously got her pregnant to have that, um, unconsciously. And I, I probably embraced it because it was what I was used to. So when I left the military, it's like, what am I going to do now? And instead of having to figure out what I was going to do, <laughs> life told me what I was going to do. I was going to be a dad. I was going to find a job. I was going to find a place to live. You know what I mean? And uh, it was right back to food, clothing, and shelter for me. So that pattern hadn't been broken. Um, it's interesting. That's kind of something I'm just realizing as I'm sharing that with you. So <laughs> That's why I love these conversations. Um, so then walk me through, you know, as you said, you're now, you've transitioned out of the military, you're, you've become a husband, a father. What was that journey into the fire service like for you? 
Yeah. So at the time we were still living in Michigan. Um, we got through the whole process of, of having my first child, Riley. And, you know, we're going to get into a little bit about this later, I think. But at that time, call it 95, um, moving into early 96, um, for me to get medical insurance for, for my family, just for emergency visits, was going to be $400 a month U.S. It doesn't sound like a lot of money now. Um, but then that was a huge chunk of my earnings to put into that. And we have socialized medicine in Canada. So, and I'm just telling the story as it is. So I was like, you know what? Like, let's move it back to Canada. Like, this is crazy. Like, there's going to be job opportunities. I kind of had an idyllic I, you know, version in my mind of reconnecting with my dad and having a support network to, to build a future. Um, but you know, one of those big factors was the, just the fact that we were kind of more in a, a position of, you know, if something goes sideways, we're going to have to lean into Medicare and welfare. And this just isn't really a, a great way of getting started in life. Um, so we moved back to, to BC. Um, things with my dad weren't as I had hoped or expected. And um, without disclosing too much about his, his personal life, because I'm I'm not really in a place where I would feel comfortable doing that with him. Um, there was enough challenges with that relationship um, that it just didn't work. And so I found myself now back in Vancouver um, with not a lot of support because my mom at the time was still in Michigan. My stepdad was still in Michigan. And what am I going to do now? So uh, found some work and started setting up uh, a home for ourselves and um, became a cabinet maker. I, I, I've always, like I said, the design stuff and the building things has always been a, a thing that I enjoyed and did that for probably a few years. Um, attempted to start a, a small business. I really loved the outdoors. So I had a company called EarthQuest Adventures that Linda and I started together um, during a period of time when I was laid off from, from cabinet making. Didn't really go anywhere. And then I was like, you know, well, what else can I do? Because like, what the military really did to me, James, is it left me feeling like a regular job just isn't going to cut it. Like, I, I don't know how many people come out of the military feeling this way, but like, I'd probably say there's quite a few where it's like when you're doing something that's an adrenaline based job, like search and rescue, and you're jumping in the water and you're swimming around and you're in helicopters and you're working on, like, it, it left me um, feeling like that's my greatest value. So what can I do that's close to that? What can I do that's going to give me that personal satisfaction, but at the same time be a, a job or a career or a future um, for myself and my family? And that's when the fire service popped into my head. And I started just moving in that direction, um, taking courses, finding out what I needed to do to apply. Again, it was a criteria of things that you know I was willing to do to get to where I needed to go. Um, extremely challenging because I didn't have a lot of financial resources. Um, once I got accepted to the fire academy, by that time I had two children and a wife that didn't work. So to take at that time, it was um, three months off to go and, you know, be there full time, going through the fire academy, getting my certification. Um, I don't know how it is for you guys in Florida, but for us, we don't actually have a job. Um, just because we're at the fire academy, that's something that you pay for 
on your own time and yeah. your own dime. Same here. So that, yeah. So that then you can actually go and apply to become a firefighter. Um, so going through that whole process, uh, coming out the back end of it, applying, looking for work. Um, I even did some work as a garbage man for a while with a buddy of mine that went through the fire Academy just to, you know, make a few bucks here and there, uh, as I was moving in the direction and, and fortunately enough, got hired, um, fairly quickly. I think my, my search and rescue background actually played a huge part in that. I was a bit of a unique resume, uh, particularly up in Canada. There's not a lot of people with military background, particularly stuff that may be relevant to fire service. And um, where I actually work in the district, North Vancouver, um, I would say per capita, we probably have more rescues than probably any other fire department in North America. Really? Um, yeah, we, we do a tremendous amount of forestry interface. So we've got three rivers that run into um, down through our, our, our uh, community. And so, you know, from hikers to, and some of the best mountain biking in the world. So anybody who's listening knows, and they're a mountain biker, they've probably heard of the North shore mountains. Um, that's my backyard. So we're rescuing mountain bikers. We're rescuing hikers off the grouse grind. We're doing swift water rescue on the regular. Um, and so that swift water component, I think, you know, I went out and got that course as well in combination really boded well for me getting in on the North shore. So, um, yeah, that, that was a, for me, that was a huge segue win, but again, psychologically, you know, it was what I was able to do that had created the value. I didn't, I still hadn't at that point figured out that I was worth much. It was still based on what other people thought of me. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was, that was kind of the start of my career. So yeah, it's, it's cool. Cause you, you bring up something really interesting that what is the psychology of the individuals that, that end up in the military and then perhaps even in the fire service is um i think it's people who are looking to be affirmed yeah absolutely and I, or protect yeah. and or protect and or protect other people yeah 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 and i mean i again I was, I was put into a position of being a dad when i was 10 i took care of my little brother and sister and my stepdad was off truck driving and um my mom was had her own struggles so yeah it's it's um you're either you're either surviving or you're taking care of other people it's been a probably a common thread in my life Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing I think that we've I've seen, you know, through the last probably seven years now. The podcast is five years old, but a couple of years before that, you know, where the mental health certainly got on my radar. Um, and then as you progress through, it's like, my God, we've been talking just about it's the things that we see. And we're missing yeah. all these other pieces, sleep deprivation, childhood yeah. trauma, you know, organizational stress. And, you know, it's it's when you put those pieces together, you're like, okay, now this is why this one guy that was at the station that never got any calls ended up hanging himself because we missed all these yeah. other pieces. How many rocks did he already have in his backpack? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. 100%. Well, uh, just staying on the swift water, I just want to get on that and then we'll talk about, you know, Linda's sure. journey. Um, yeah. You ended up becoming a, a teacher in that. So that's not again, uh, an area of the fire service you hear a lot of people talk about. <clears throat> so, what are what are some of the the misconceptions or some of the the big takeaways that maybe most firefighters out there wouldn't be aware of when it comes to swift water rescue? Well, um, probably the 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 one that even for me was a a big aha moment is that you're more you're four hundred times more likely to get hurt doing swift water than you are working on a structure fire. Really? Yeah, it's it's, it's an incredibly dangerous dynamic um, because 
even inside of the work we do with structure fires, there's elements of control. The, the ground is solid. You know, the structure is in front of you. you. There's fire science. You can read the dynamic of the fire. You don't actually have to go inside. You know, there's things that you can, you know, protocols that you can put in place to keep yourself safe and still be effective in your job. Um, with Swiftwater Rescue, obviously, you're, we want to work from the, the simplest to the most complex as far as the strategy for doing the rescue. But inevitably, it, it, it oftentimes leads to somebody getting inside of a, in, inside of a dynamic that's completely chaotic, um, changes very quickly based on what's going on with the weather, uh, and requires a, a tremendous amount of experience. So you can't just take a course and apply it. You, you literally have to be indoctrinated into the processes of getting in the water, understanding where the safe place is. It's just a, it's, it's almost like a discipline unto its own that falls into the umbrella um, of the fire service, depending on the nature of the um, terrain in which your fire hall is located or your fire service is located. So um, a lot of actually uh, swift water, the, the, the first things associated with Swiftwater came out of um, California because California has so many of those. Um, yeah, the channels. The channels. Yeah. Yeah. And, th- and those channels create a water dynamic that's completely uh, slipstream. So uh, once you're in them, they're extremely hard to get out in flood state. And so uh, Swiftwater Rescue, you know, if we call it 45 to 50 years ago, it wasn't even a thing. So what was ended up happening is not only were people dying, a lot of firefighters were dying, attempting to rescue people in turnout gear and using ropes, you know, perpendicular to water flow. And um, now sw- segue that into a, a more wilderness setting. Now you're dealing with people kayaking and cliff jumping and swimming and all of that um, in a, in a, a a much more um, what I would consult, c- consider um, organic dynamic. You're dealing with like waterfalls and big holes and undercuts and um, these types of things that make it extremely treacherous. So if, if the, if those um, runway shoots in California make it challenging because there's, they're just smooth and there's no way to get out. Um, natural dynamic is, is it creates all sorts of hazards in the water that will kill you really, really quick. So, yeah, yeah, it's not for everybody. It, it certainly isn't for everybody. And 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 as a uh, officer of 22 years, there's I know the guys that I would put in the water, and I know the guys that I wouldn't. And that's not a that's not a a bad on them. It's just you're either comfortable in it or you're not. Yeah, and you need to be comfortable, or you become the victim, real quick. Well, I remember we did kind of like a first responder level. Um, training um so it was obviously a lot of the inflate inflating the hoses you know letting them kind of swing around and try and grab the the victim in the water but uh even the eddies it kind of takes me back i lifeguarded as you know just after school in um a like a, a holiday village and it had this big dome because the weather in england is terrible so it was all in this big uh kind of like giant atmosphere they built around it but they had this man-made rapids and it was you know it was basically like a fun mm. slide but there was this one part where, I mean, we're talking very, very tame, but even then, the eddy, just from this one, you know, it kind of hit a wall and then it went up and you, if you did it right, you kind of flopped over it and then down you went where some of the younger kids would get stuck and watching them spin around 
Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, this this wall was probably, God, I don't know if it was even three feet. And then you think about the weirs and some of these channels that they have in, in you know, L.A. and Anaheim where I worked, you know, when they get the big rains, you, know, you, you hear these horror stories that people go in and they just spin for hours and hours. So someone's trying to able to finally get their body out. But it's, yeah, I can see just even in that man-made surface how dangerous it is. But you add boulders and fallen trees and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, that's an absolute chaos, as you were saying earlier. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the, you know, from the standpoint of a firefighter understanding the difference again, between say swift water or the traditional structural firefighting or car accidents or any of these things is that you have the ability to change the uh, environment. So in other words, if, if a building's on fire and you, you have a good strategy and you start to be able to contain that fire, you're making it safer and safer and safer as you go. Right. If you approach a car, and it's on fire and you put the fire out and you come from, you know what I mean? You, you have the ability to make the scene safer. The interesting thing with the dynamic of water is you cannot impact the environment. It's relentless. So what you're talking about is somebody spinning in the water. It doesn't matter how strong you are when you get in, the water will never lose because it never gets tired and you will. And that's oftentimes what overcomes an individual and, and why they succumb to drowning um, is that they just don't have the physical strength to keep up with the environment that they put themselves in, whether they're the, whether they're the person that you're there to help or you're the person going in to do the work. So being extremely cautious, being extremely educated and having lots of practice in something that most people would consider extremely high risk, but low frequency. I'm sure you've heard that in your firefighting training, right? There's yes. high frequent, high frequency, low risk, which would be like a medical aid call. And then there's low frequency, high risk. Swift water is probably one of the most dangerous dynamics. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, the importance of realism in training, let's talk about that for a moment because I see some of these uh, great facilities they have around the country where, you know, they're built to train and they can create those, you know, crazy flows in their, um, their props and they'll have, you know, cars and all kinds of stuff. So how important is it to, to create as close to real as possible when you're training a swift war rescuer? Well, I mean, think about it this way. You, if you have a, um, a, a fire service and you've got like a high rise or you've got an industrial area, oftentimes you go into, you'll pre-plan those buildings, right? So it's, it's important, in other words, to interact with what's actually in your community or in your environment. We train real time in the rivers that are in our area. So we don't, we don't try to simulate. Um, I mean, there's a lot of crossover because we do a lot of um, high angle-esque rescue. Um, so anything that is slope side is ropes. So it's a full rope show. So you're, you're doing all of that dynamic. Plus, if it's over water, it's a swift water rescue. So um, we train very much in the environment of the North Shore because we have access to all of it. Um, but there's some comp what I'm saying is there's also some complementary skill sets. In other words, I can work with the guys in the bay and I can set up a mechanical advantage and I can set up high points and I can we can do some of that in-house, but we really, really prefer to get out into our into our community and train live. And um I think that the other thing about that is the the degree of um technical experience over the course of a career. So you typically some you know see the 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 junior guy going into a fire let's say because he's young he's strong and that kind of thing in swift water you're rarely going to see the brand new guy going into the water 
I just wouldn't do it. Uh, I would want to make sure that it was somebody who had, you know, probably at least five to 10 years of experience or seasons of training before we really put them on the end of the line. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it's something we take very, very seriously. And we put a lot of hours into our, our rope and uh, swift water program. Yeah. See, it's, it's an interesting perspective. We had uh, a boat program in a couple of departments that I, I was in a couple ago, should I say. Um, and there would be a special cert. I mean, apart from the special ops, there'd be a special cert, for example, to drive the wildland truck, the brush truck they had. But anyone could flow in to this station and be in charge of hooking up a boat, towing it down to the ramp, backing it in, driving it. And this is, this isn't moving water. This is a lake, but driving it to a patient, getting in, backboarding them with zero training, nothing. And it blew my mind. And they have actually changed it now. While I was there, I was one of many, many voices. And then we had a progressive chief that they just fired because he was progressive. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, they put in a dive program or, or, or supported the guys that, that made the dive program. But yeah, I mean, you know, we forget that. Even even the idiosyncrasies of, for example, backboarding, they had regular backboards. Well, that shit doesn't work when it gets wet. You know, so you've got to think of now as a lifeguard, not a not a firefighter. You know, and having that humility to cross train, and and see the hazards in, as you said, not just a fire. I mean, that's pretty blatantly obvious. But all these other things, these other skills, these other you know jack of all trades areas that we're responsible for, and you know, learning from, for example, departments like you when it comes to swift water, or you know, CDF when it comes to wildfire. You know, and and, and cross pollinating and actually talking to each other rather than that kind of complacency that I saw there, which is, well, we'll be fine. No, you won't. Someone will end up dying. Well, and that that's the history of swift water. So that's what was happening to firefighters in California is they had no training. They had the gear that was on the truck and they did the right thing by making do. But what they didn't understand is they were stepping into a very deadly dynamic and it, it cost people lives. You know, so um, training is is 100%. I mean, I can take anybody through a course. I can take a, a guy and I can keep him in school. I can make the fire academy two years long. He could graduate with fire officer three, ready to become a chief. But you know as well as I is that until you take that knowledge and you apply it and you actually get a visceral experience and opportunity feedback, you really don't um, have the confidence and you don't have the experience base, um, not only to be safe for yourself, but to be safe for your 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 teammates, and and most certainly you're not in a position to lead. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of um, progressive rank advancement. You know, in the in the fire service, I think you should have, you should do it before you teach it or you run it. And I think that really comes again from um, my experience with Swift Water. Um, Rescue Three International is is actually out of California. They're a, a governing body that certifies people in swift water rescue through different organizations that teach it. And if I'm going to teach you swift water, I have to be trained to a minimum of of one discipline above you. So I can't even teach you awareness unless I'm an ops level tech. I can't teach ops level unless I've done my night ops and I've done my you know what I mean? So th th there's a there's a real system for ensuring um, that the information is being passed on in a, in a really clear and concise way. But that in itself requires people to get in the water. It's not classroom. It's practical. And I think that that's what gets lost. And then also, you know, you know, there's the, the, the truth of it is that it, the, the low frequency thing is that 
what's really allowed us to do what we do in, in the district North van is it's not low frequency. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we, we did our hazmat training the other day and uh, one of the neighboring departments kind of covers off hazmat for us. And we're sitting around and in the 22 years I've been on the job, I think I've been to maybe one or two, maybe three things that I would classify as a hazmat call. I've been to hundreds of rescues, you know? So it's just um, the nature and the dynamic of your department for sure dictates. But at the same time, I can't ignore hazmat. And that's what you're describing. I can't ignore lake rescue just because we don't oftentimes do it because those are the things that kill people because those are the things that we're not practiced in. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you for that perspective. It was just, you know, it's, it's rare that swift water comes up. So I'm, you know, I'm an avid no, student yeah. as well. Yeah, I love it. I love sharing it. It's, it's a, uh, it's a really cool opportunity when as a firefighter, you get to do more than just what people think firefighters do. And um, the North Shore Mountains have given us a, a, a topography and, and a, a, a situation where as the jurisdiction having responsibility, we just have a broad scope of things that we have to support. Um, and then we actually now have a fire chief who's extremely progressive um, from the stand of wildland. We've, we've been having a lot of wildland fires like they have in California. Um, we're getting a lot of that up in British Columbia now. And every season it's getting worse and worse. Um, so we're, uh, we're outfitted now with the training and the equipment to support the province when it comes to wildfires as well. So we've got guys that do deployments and um, very, very proactive fire department. Excellent. I mean, that's so good yeah. to hear. And I think that's the thing that we, you know, some people forget. We are jack of all trades, master of none, you know, and just like you said, there are some of us that are great on that, you know, single family dwelling, 800 square foot wooden home. You know, there's some that are high rise gurus, there's some that are wildland gurus, Um but ultimately, any of us can be called to many. I probably won't get an ice rescue here in Florida. I mean, not especially now. No. I'm, I'm transitioned <laughs> out, but you know, so we can take some of those off the table. But, uh, but yeah, but I mean, look at Texas, perfect example. They didn't think they could till last winter, you know. So, so yeah, very, very interesting. Well, I want to get to your journey with Linda. So, firstly, you know, you're, you know, you're married. You, you, you have kids. Now you're in the fire service. Walk me through to when your marriage initially end and then obviously there's, there's there's a reason i'm asking that question yeah 100 percent. so um you know I'm, I'll, I'll be real you know i'm not going to pretend um i when i started in the fire service uh and this is 22 years ago um you know the big joke was 85 percent of the guys in the fire service are divorced they've been married at least more than once you know it's 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 this melding pot of brotherhood but at the same time it's also a bunch of guys who are not really perhaps great at relationships. They at that point certainly hadn't identified a lot of the stresses and things that you're describing that they brought into the fire service or the ones that are created by the work that they do. Um, and that's tragic. And I think for me, I, I was one of those people that became um, somewhat of a, a staff associated with that. You know, my own challenges in childhood, um, a lack of really healthy modeling and relationships and um, a desire to be uh, approved by other people pushed a lot of buttons for me. And that wreaked a lot of havoc, havoc on my relationship. Um, at this point, you know, I had uh, two children when I, when I started the fire service, I had two young ones. Um, Riley was four and my son was two and a half. Paul, Paul Jr. was two and a half. And uh, it is over the course of, you know, the 17 years that Linda and I were together, 
um, it was a fight. It was a, it was a challenge. It was a constant battle to, um, be the type of person that I thought I needed to be, you know, in relationship. And there were so many opportunities to, you know, fuck that up. Excuse my French, uh, that the, 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 the job brought and whether that was, you know, the, the stresses that we've talked about, or even just the opportunities to go and, um, be almost like a quasi rock star in some cases, you know, with your behaviors, you know, it was, it was, it was almost expected that you're going to go out and drink and party and be that kind of a guy at some point too. Right. So it had its toll and, you know, in the 227 times that Linda and I broke up and got back together, <laughs> I have to laugh about that because it's probably not too far from the truth. Um, we loved each other incredibly. We loved our children with all our hearts. And uh, in, I think it was 2010, uh, we legally separated. So to be clear, Linda and I actually never divorced. Okay. Up here in Canada, you have to be legally separated for a year before you can get a divorce. And for the sake of uh, our children and the age that they were, um, and there wasn't really a desire for either of us to be with someone else at that point, um, benefits and all the things associated with the practicality of taking care of our children, we didn't activate on the divorce piece after the one year had transpired. Um, and it was probably one of the best things we ever did for our relationship. Um, you know, we, we segued from, you know, being, um, married, like in a traditional relationship to becoming parent partners and what I would consider, um, extremely close friends who still trusted each other very much and leaned into each other. Um, but also respected and appreciated that we weren't that couple anymore and you know for me and a lot of people get very jealous about this stuff but i think it's it's worth mentioning because it definitely translated into um, how we handled things when linda got sick but as an example like when linda started dating somebody new and it was a serious relationship like i would go for thanksgiving dinner or christmas or we, we were still very much um inclusive of each other and and i'm not really a, a jealous guy and so, you know, what really mattered to me is that people were happy and what I really love is family. So albeit we weren't a typical family anymore, um, we were probably a healthier family than when we were attempting to stay together as, as a, you know, a couple. Um, so, so that, that, that worked really well for us. Um, and um, I guess where that work paid dividends, because I, through that same period of time, I put a tremendous amount of work into personal development and personal growth. Um, I wanted to overcome the lies that I had been telling myself. And it's probably worth chatting about this um, briefly because I think that you touch a lot on mental health um, in your podcast and, and see how that impacts first responders. Um, you know, when you're sitting on a garbage can full of shit, and you believe in your mind that your value is what other people think, uh, you're not really good at asking for help. And when things got really bad in my relationship with Linda um, and the garbage can was getting really, really full, I got knocked off the can and all that shit came pouring out. 
And I guess it was the desire to be a better man and a better human being for my family and my children that inspired me to stop, um, you know, trying to be the tough guy, believing that, you know, I had to figure it out on my own. Um, and I started asking for help. And some of that help led me in the direction of some uh, programs that helped me to change the way I was believing the world worked. It, it helped me to recognize that my value wasn't what I did or what other people thought. It wasn't my reputation that determined my worth. It was actually my character. And that my real value was like everyone's rooted in the truth that there is no human being that's worth more than any other human being. We're all of equal value at birth. What, what part of the universe is worth more than any other piece? You know, what part of the vacuum cleaner is worth more than any other piece of the vacuum? It, it's in combination that um, anything works and you take one part out and it's not complete. And so there was a real shift in my belief system. And, you know, going back to what we talked about, why I went into the military is you are what you believe. And I believed that I could be a better person. I believed that my value wasn't the lie that I had been telling myself through, you know, the honest experiences that I had in my life. We, we are a culmination of our, our thoughts, our beliefs, and our experiences. And um, I made some big shifts. And so because of that, not only did my relationship with everyone improve, because it was really the relationship with myself that I was working on. You know, you bring yourself into every other relationship. So my personal and professional life just started to, to blossom. Um, it also set me up to take care of a situation that showed up in 2015 for us. Um, and that was Linda's um, undiagnosed um, neurological uh, episodes that were starting to present themselves. And uh, it's a, it's a tough thing to witness somebody that you've loved, cared for, fought for, fought to be with for that many years, um, facing a challenge like the one that Linda faced. And, um, what started in 2015 ended with a diagnosis in, in early 2016 of ALS. And I know you've had other people on that, that, uh, are, are fighting that disease and faced that challenge. Um, but for us, it was something that, um, you know, like you had talked about, I had heard about ALS because people were dumping buckets of ice water on their head, but I really didn't understand what the disease was until it was, it was uh, something that my, my, you know, somebody that mattered to me very much was facing. And so it was, a, it was like, how can I get educated really, really, really fast? How can I understand what it is that we're actually dealing with and what can I do to help? And, um, you know, later on, as, as, as we stepped more into the, the actual care plan for Linda, I used to have people ask me all the time, like, how are you able to do this? Like, why are you doing this for your ex-wife? Like, what's compelling you to support somebody the way that you're supporting them? And, you know, not everybody got it, but, you know, the ultimate answer was, I'm not doing it for Linda. I'm doing it for me. because. I have to look myself in the mirror. I have, to, I don't know how to do it any other way. This is a relationship conversation I'm having with my soul. How can I turn my back on the mother of my children? How could I possibly abandon my kids to deal with this with their mother on their own? Cause they, at that time were 18 and 20, you know, it just wasn't something I could even conceptualize. And as a, as, as you'd understand as a fire, 
being in the fire service, we're there to help. We're, th we're there to solve problems. And so that, that clicked for me real quick. Like I, I quickly realized that everything in my life had set me up to be somebody that could do something, you know, very unique as it related to the care that Linda was getting ready to need. Um, and so, you know, that was just what we decided. Um, I was very fortunate to have a job that allowed me to take a leave of absence. Um, I took that leave of absence, uh, unpaid leave, obviously, um, and decided that I was going to take care of her full time. And so with my kids, uh, we, we made the majority of the care team. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's worth saying for those of you who don't know what ALS is, uh, it's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, ALS is a degenerative neurological and typically shows up with some sort of decline in neurological function. Um, for Linda, she had weaknesses in her legs. She started to get slurred speech. Um, and, and for that, you know, even to understand that there's different types of ALS, not a lot of people understand the difference between traditional ALS and uh, bulbar ALS, which has got a slightly different set of um, symptoms and they arrive in a slightly different format. So uh, bulbar ALS is a, is a much more aggressive form of ALS than the, the traditional diagnosis. Um, it oftentimes attacks um, the, the voice and the ability to swallow uh, very quickly. Um, and that was the kind that Linda had. Uh, the other sad part about that is that um, with bulbar ALS, you don't have uh, as much motor control over your eyes. And so a lot of the tools that people use as they advance into the disease to communicate are eye gaze machines. Um, so if anybody listening knows who Stephen Hawking is, he's a, a very famous person who had ALS. He lived a really long time. He communicated using eye gaze. So he could literally look at a computer screen and type. Um, people with bulbar ALS, albeit they send the message to their eyes to move, um, they oftentimes don't get the response. So their eyes will move, but not timely enough or not with enough control or function uh, to actually take advantage of those types of devices. So, um, so kind of rolling back uh, to Linda's diagnosis, um, not knowing a lot about ALS, um, not even understanding what the disease was, now knowing a whole lot more, being connected to that community uh, through the process of taking care of her and some of the things that I've done since. Um, what I now know is there, there is no way of actually diagnosing ALS. There is no genetic markers. There is no particular set of um, things that they can do that say this is for sure ALS. What ALS is, is it's a combination of symptoms that are left over after they test you for everything else. It's what's left over and they call it ALS. So this becomes really, really, really confusing for people um, and where misdiagnosis can happen. And uh, particularly with it being um, a palliative disease, uh, you're dealing with a person who actually, um, and oftentimes is adopting somebody else's belief. So see, we're, we're going back to what I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. And there was a reason in. why I really, yeah, there's a reason why I really wanted to lean into that is because um, we do what we believe. And with things like ALS and with the influence that people have on other people's lives, um, a lot of the time with a diagnosis like ALS being that it is 
considered a palliative disease, uh, that's being installed on the person. You know, it's not, you've got cancer and these are the treatments. It's you got ALS and you're probably going to be dead in two to five years. So see you later. That is a very typical experience. You know, I listened to your podcast, uh, 256 with Eric describing his, uh, diagnosis in the, in the doctor's office. That is actually more typical than not. It, it, it's what most people face because the doctors and the people who work with this disease, they don't have the emotional fortitude to even face what these people are facing themselves. Like, how do you turn to somebody and say, Hey, guess what? I'm a doctor. You've got this disease. Absolutely nothing I can do for you. So you're going to die and see you later. Like they're, 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 I think the doctors feel just as helpless sometimes as the people who are diagnosed. So that's, that's said with a level of empathy, not a judgment that, you know, I wouldn't want to be a firefighter that showed up to a scene and go, you know what? Sorry, man, nothing I can do. You're going to die. How would you feel as a firefighter having to deliver that message? Well, when we do, you know, I mean, we get patients that have been on some horrific wreck and, you know, please don't let me die. And you look at them and, you know, you have to hold their hand and and tell them, you know, I'm going to be with you. But the reality is, no, you are going to die in three, two, one. There you go. And so, yeah, so there are those, those acute scenarios where we do have that experience and, and I I would never want to discount that. Um, But to tell somebody this is what's going to happen to you in the future. Yeah. Long-term there's no hope. That's a, that's a cautionary tale. Uh, I'm very cautious of doctors or people who feel like they have the right to do that. What they should be doing is telling people, Hey, um, it looks like you have this disease ALS. We don't know what causes it. All we know is this is how we come to the conclusion. Um, and you might want to get some research on it. Some people live a really long time. Some people don't. Um, but the last thing I want to do is tell you what's going to happen to you because there really are so many unknowns with it. Here's some, some steps you can take to get more information. I, 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 you know, that's to me is the simplest and the, and the most kind way of sharing that information. But that wasn't the way it was shared with Linda. So in Canada, we have a... a um, a system here where we have the uh, ALS Society, which is an amazing organization um, that supplied Linda with all the equipment um, and some some support around understanding the disease. Um, the ALS Society is all the way across Canada. Um, they're regional by province. They have a not too dissimilar thing in the states. Um, and these nonprofits are are more focused around support than they are treatment. Um, we also have an ALS clinic, which is the neurologist that would have tested Linda, as well as the team of people that um, are there to support um, as a person moves in the direction of um, succumbing to the disease. So their belief system is, is that nobody can recover from ALS. That, that's what you walk into when you walk into an, oftentimes into an ALS clinic. Sorry, you have ALS. Here's a dietitian. Here's a, a physiotherapist. Here's a uh, a neurologist. We're, we're this team of people that's going to talk to you maybe once every three to five months. Um, but we're just here to help you be comfortable as you die. So that's what we faced. And, you know, I was like, well, if what you're telling me is you, you can't tell me what causes it, you're telling me there's no treatments other than these drugs that do nothing. 
Um, and the only thing that you're going to do for us is basically help us embrace the idea that this is a terminal illness and Linda's going to die. Uh, the only thing that we can do is think differently. So instead of deciding what the outcome is going to be, we're going to do everything to make the most of the time that we have, however much time that is. And so we, we made that pact as a family. It was a family decision with my kids and, and Linda. And that was when I decided to uh, take the leave and, and take care of her full time and um, move in a perhaps a, a non-typical way of dealing with that diagnosis that in retrospect, I look back and I'm so grateful that we did um, simply for the amount of memories that we were able to create in the time that we had Linda with us. So, um, so if Linda was diagnosed, uh, her first symptoms were for, were for sure 2015. She didn't actually get a diagnosis until the beginning of uh, 2016. And we lost Linda Valentine's Day, um, February 14th, 2018. But inside of that time, uh, we never put in, put her into palliative care. We didn't put her into a care facility. Um, you know, I look at it and go, you know what? I would not wish the disease. I would not wish the process. It was the most challenging thing I've ever had to do in my life. It was hard. It was horrible. Um, but it is probably one of the things I am the most grateful for in my entire life's experience because it actually inspired me to be a better human being. Um, yeah. And to look at it and go with the time that we had left, we were able to create so many amazing experiences for her and the kids. And I think that they would look at it the same way, that, that it was extremely challenging. I mean, it, to think about everything that you need to do as a human being, from getting dressed to eating, to going to the bathroom, to bathing, to brushing, brushing your teeth, to scratching an itch, to 24-hour um, care for another human being. Um, you know, I don't know how graphic it is to be on your podcast. Wherever you, know? wherever you want to go, mate. But, you know, I look at my 18-year-old son and, you know, in the beginning, we had no carried support. We had no financial support. We were just the three of us doing it. And my son having to deal with his mom's period, you know, like that's the real of this disease. You know, for, for an 18-year-old to have to care for his mom in that way and do it. That's unconditional love. And I, I think that that's really something that, um, you know, when you strive to find value in all things, when you look at a situation and you go, okay, well, you're not married to her anymore. Well, you know what? Okay. We had all sorts of titles. We were friends. We were, we were boyfriends and girlfriends. We were lovers. We were parents together. We've been business partners. We're parent partners we had all these different titles, but the one thing that never changed in our relationship was that we had love for each other. And I think that that's, what's really, really great about um, these example opportunities for people is don't, don't let a, a, a title define love. Let your heart lead you and let your actions follow your heart. 
Um, because at the end of it, no matter what happens, Linda passed. Um, I don't know everything that, and I didn't know everything I know about ALS that I know now. I didn't know it then, but I can look at this situation and go, I have no regret. I did everything I could inside of the power and my capacity. And again, there's no judgment in it. There was an extremely hard thing. I don't know that it's what everybody should do if they're, they're, family member has ALS. It's just what we chose to do, but whatever it is, just look at it and go, let love be your, your, your deciding factor, you know? And, um, so we took care of Linda full-time for two years. Uh, we built some programs in so that she could stay at home. We had some amazing support from organizations like the ALS society. And, um, you know, our, we're, we're fortunate enough to have a, some socialized medicine up here. And uh, they had a program called Cecil. Um, which was able to almost run like a business and bring in some external care aids to give us respite and um, these types of things. But I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, and I know they're dealing with the same thing globally, uh, particularly in, in the United States. Um, once you have a palliative diagnosis, you know, um, we don't throw a lot of resources at it. You know, it's triaged down, down the rung. You know, how much money are you going to spend on somebody that's going to die no matter what? And because we don't have a real clear definition of what causes ALS and we don't have any treatments and we've experienced it as a matter of time, um, these people get abandoned. They really truly get abandoned. Well, it's such a, a, you know, unique perspective that you have. You were in the States, as you said, you partly went to back to Canada because of the health insurance kind of dynamic here. That example you just used, my granddad was 99 years old when he was diagnosed with cancer. And he was diagnosed after getting T-boned, his fault, at like 45 miles an hour, didn't even go to hospital. This guy is just a freaking rock star, like a RoboCop granddad. But they found, you know, in, in the analysis after he had his injuries and stuff, they found cancer in his bones. Um, he had bladder cancer initially. But this is national health. And I hate the word socialized medicine. I know it's used a lot, but it sounds like communism, socialism, you know, so far from altruism. It should be altruistic medicine, in my opinion. But 99 years old, riddled with cancer, and had the best care I've ever seen. Had home nurse visits, home doctor's visits. They came in and, and put a, in an actual medical bed in his room. Um, after he passed away for about two weeks, they visited my grandmother, making sure she was okay. They took away all the medical stuff and put, you know, basically helped put the room back to, to normal. Amazing. National health. I would, you would never see that here. And, and it breaks my heart that so many people have been on here, whether it's ALS, whether it's cancer, another added, excuse me, another added layer of stress for these men and women is that not only did I have the audacity to get cancer, but my family are probably going to lose the house trying to pay for my treatments, which I think is the furthest from these medical, I mean, excuse me, these, uh, religious doctrines that we seem to hold so closely, yet we've allowed the illness of our men and women to be monetized and people make billions while American men and women especially are literally bankrupted by their loved ones' divorces. Uh, excuse me, diseases, not divorces. Yeah. No, and, and, and you know, I mean, you can get into the, the geopolitical piece and, and how it's attached to healthcare and, um, you know, and, and then funnel down even into these specific disease states. I think, you know, even inside of socialized medicine, 
the difference between somebody here in, in Canada that gets terminal cancer um, and somebody that has ALS is that terminal cancers are typically pretty quick. They hate investing in something that could cost them that amount of money for two to five years or beyond. So, you know, although there's, and the fact that it's, it's, it's kind of behind the veil. So most people like Linda end up on the palliative floor of a hospital. They don't stay at home. It's not a typical thing. They get to a point of, of the disease progression where they can no longer walk. They can no longer feed themselves. They, it becomes way too much work. And those people, they, they rarely stay at home. Even in the U.S., they end up in a hospital. And then what ends up happening is there's an acceleration of the progression. So, you know, if you even took that disease state like ALS and you said, okay, what percentage of the people get the best chance? What percentage of them actually live to the, the full extent of what's possible? I mean, I had an accelerated form of ALS. I mean, I had nurses tell me, like, you gave Linda an extra year of life with the work that you did. And I'll pat myself on the back for that. I just look at it and go, well, how many people didn't get that? How many people deserve to have that kind of care? You know, and, and not have to fight for it and advocate for it and, and, and be the, uh, the workhorse. And so, you know, we could talk about that stuff for a while. Like, I mean, that, that, that's a, a passion of mine for sure. And there's a lot of amazing organizations in the States that are not typical thinkers in the, when it comes to the disease of ALS, you know, um, everything ALS, um, healing ALS, um, Never Surrender, Mark Manchester Group. Uh, Dr. Bedlack, who's got documented uh, 43 reversals of some of them that are personal friends of mine. Really? Actually completely reversed their ALS. It, 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 it's, it's the what we don't want to talk about stuff. You know, we want to trust our medical system. And I don't blame people. You know, we don't want to get into what the, the woo-woo or the, you know, the, the fringe type approach. Um, because we've been taught to follow a particular system. But what I'm, I'm identifying, and I think what you've identified, you know, in this conversation, and even in the one that you had with Eric, um, is that the system is failing miserably. 100%. I looked at the system up here in Canada, and I was like, this system isn't going to help Linda. This system is just designed to have her have a level of subsistence until she passes so that the problem is just gone. She's a problem for the system. So how do we, how do we in a gentle way, just help that person out of the system is we let them die. And to the cost of the family, like you described, um, a lot of people who lose people to different diseases have a lot of regret because they find out afterwards things that they could have done differently. I think we're, there's a, there's a, a learning curve associated with a lot of these things that isn't properly uh, translated to the next round. I mean, you guys talked about it on the, the podcast with Eric, every 90, every 90 minutes, somebody dies from ALS and every 90 minutes, someone is diagnosed. And that in the United States, there's 30,000 people that any one given time have ALS. Well, what that means isn't how many people are dying from ALS. That's just how many people constantly have it. There's a cycle of, of that 30,000 happening on the, the, the 90 second rotation. Some That's hundreds of thousands. 
That's right. So the, it's just, a, you just never empty the gas tank. It's always full of 30,000 people, but that could represent millions of people that have died from the disease. It's because they, desire, they die so quickly and they're, a new person is reintroduced. We just don't see it as a large population, but it actually is a much larger population than you think. I, I Googled to get some stats um, when I did that post a little while ago with that, you know, that heartbreaking video of the, yeah. the son picking up his mother at the wedding. Um, and yeah, even, even there, it was hard to find statistics. How many people do we lose each year from ALS? How many people, are, uh, you know, have been diagnosed with it worldwide? And, and it was really, really, you know, difficult. And like you said, that 30,000, that, that cyclical 30,000 was the only kind of statistic that I could really find. Yeah. And here in BC, because it, it, it breaks down, right? In BC, there's 400 people that have ALS at any given moment. But that doesn't mean that that's how many people are going to die from ALS. That just means that for everyone that dies, another one just repopulates. You know, there's, there's variance in it, but it, it stays pretty static. Like the, we have provincial stats on that. So what ends up happening is, oh, well, only 400 people? Why are we going to throw a bunch of energy and effort at 400 people when there's cancer and there's all of these other disease states to consider, you know, and by, oh, by the way, that one's a terminal illness. So uh, we don't even have any solutions for that, but, you know, not too different than uh, a triage approach. You, you work on the things that you feel like you're going to actually be able to make a difference with, and you somewhat want to forget about the ones that you can't help. And um, I guess for me, one of the things that became clearly apparent, not just with ALS, but with you know, the overarching health of people um, in the world um, is kind of the attitude that uh, I discovered uh, medicine has towards food. So maybe a good opportunity to segue into the, 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 the topic relating to what I feel is Linda's legacy. Absolutely. Let's do it. And, um, you know, turning what is a, a really sad uh, set of circumstances uh, into a, a value for other people. And I think before I start getting into that, I'd, I'd want to say that Linda, Linda is one of these people who has a really rare mantle, in, in my opinion. Um, because, you know, when you ask, you know, what is, what is life all about? Like, what is my purpose? You know, um, well, Linda wears the mantle of inspiring people to be better. She gets to know that her life uh, is inspired change for a positive. And I don't know there's, you know, I would think that we all have that in some ways, but to have a clearly identifiable um, outcome as a result of her life's, you know, being, you know, her, her, her life in, in its entirety and her passing to, to be able to put a finger on it and go, this, hap this is happening because of this person's suffering. This is happening because this person inspired other people to make change in the world. That's, that's a rare thing. And it's something that um, is a result of that philosophy of strive to find value in all things. And, and when we got introduced to feeding tubes, um, again, for your audience, if you don't know, um, if you can't eat through your mouth, they put a tube through your stomach, right into your, through your abdomen, right into your stomach. And they, they inject food right into your gut because you literally can't swallow anymore. Um, most people with ALS at some point will end up on a feeding tube. 
if they don't succumb to some sort of choking event or some sort of um, breathing episode interruption, um, they end up on a feeding tube because they can't swallow anymore. And the, the things that we feed our sick people, um, we feed our sickest food to our sickest people. And that's really what I discovered with Linda is at the point of her needing a feeding tube because she had bulbar ALS, she was already nonverbal. So I could communicate with Linda um, by looking left or right. So right was yes, left was no. But I'd have to ask her every question three times because of the bulbar, sometimes she would, her head would move the wrong direction. So we had a really rudimentary uh, way of communicating. Her hand stopped working. So iPad went away real fast. You know, we had touch the board, spell things out. Um, but again, you know, oftentimes missing letters, we could spend an hour trying to spell out like three words. It, it, it was an exercise in futility. So by the time we got to the point of feeding tube and some of these other decisions, um, the only way that I could really make them is to go, what would I want for me? If I was Linda through her eyes, what would I want for me? And for all of you listening, um, the comparative to what they feed people through a feeding tube is boost and ensure. So highly processed, highly synthetic meal replacements that are designed supposedly to give us nutrition, but in actuality, most synthetics don't absorb the same way and are probably some of the lowest quality foods you can actually introduce into your body. They, I, in my opinion, do more harm than good. The one that Linda was introduced to was a product called Complete by Nestle. Um, and, and bear with me, I'm, I'm not throwing stones or muck at a, a company like Nestle because the truth is, is that if those products weren't there, those people would have nothing. Um, but in my view, I looked at that and said, you know what, if I was Linda, would I want to drink 10 boosts a day? And for the rest of my life, that's all I get. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. No, it didn't so. make any sense. Right. It makes no sense. And so I, in my, in my mind, I was like, okay, well, if, if what you're telling me is this is the only thing that you can prescribe to her because it's the only thing that meets these particular criterial guidelines for you to be able to refer something, cover your ass type stuff lives in the world of medicine, um, then I'm just going to do something at home. So I started blending at home for Linda. I, I, you know, I can look at macros and micros. I have enough background in nutrition through my own sports endeavors to go, well, I can do something better than this. And so organic, non-GMO, whole food blends, um, including some superfoods, things that were anti-inflammatory, uh, things that I thought would really benefit her and give her an optimal opportunity for not just um, health or a potential reversal or extension of her life, but just to feel good. I mean, you know, if you lived on chocolate bars, how bad would you feel? Oh, absolutely. You know, you, you'd feel like, you'd feel like crap. And so, you know, to just know that she was getting the nutrition she needed to be um, balanced in her blood sugar and awake and aware and to have experiential interaction that wasn't us having fun and her sitting there just suffering through it because she's in a sugar crash. You know, it just, everything about me was like, okay, well, a, base, a baseline of any healing is food. The baseline of your body making its own medicine is food. If we're not making sure that we're getting everything that our body needs that are the precursors uh, to medicine, um, we certainly aren't going to have an opportunity for health, longevity, or healing. So I just, 
took it upon myself to start doing that at home. And what was interesting is, is that the in-house visits that would come once a week from a nurse, you know, they're looking for bed sores, they're looking for constipation, they're looking for, you know, prescribe any kind of prescribed deterioration. Um, and they didn't get any bed sores the entire time she had ALS. Um, she was rarely constipated, right? Um, her eyes were clear. I would just almost describe Linda as the healthiest sick person you'd ever met because everything else was good. Just had this massive neurological decline, right? Um, and so, you know, looking at that and then going, okay, well, what does this mean for Linda? And then just waking up one day and going, you know what, this isn't just for Linda. This is something that everybody deserves to have. I don't care what people choose to do. Like, I don't care if a person chooses to exercise. I don't care if a person chooses to eat McDonald's every day because they have a choice. What people like Linda don't have is a choice alternative. It's this or nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it makes you question, like, how, how was that the only option when, of course, there were probably people proposing more holistic alternatives? A hundred percent. And and so, you know, that is what inspired uh, me to start a company called Fox Foods, um, P-H-O-X Foods. Um, Linda's spirit animal was a fox. So it's a little bit of a play on the word fox, uh, P-H for phytonutrient because phytonutrients are the, the fruits or the, the vitamins and minerals and trace elements that come naturally from plants. Um, the product is now heal. Um, but really what I, what I ran into was a whole lot of people who knew it should be done better, but nobody had bothered to take the time to create the, the innovation. Dietitians knew that complete was not the, the, the optimal thing for Linda to eat. But because of their college of medicine and the, the fear of lawsuits and the fear of people doing it wrong at home or somebody um, starving to death because they don't have an understanding of nutrition, um, they really are only allowed to prescribe the things that are available on the market. And so I was like, okay, well, not only do people who are suffering deserve an alternative, so do the care, caregivers like myself and the professionals deserve alternatives to what is currently available on the market. And um, so I made that our mission. Um, that's Linda's legacy. I mean, we, we, uh, we started the company in 2017. Um, we're at a point now uh, where we're getting ready to scale. Um, and we've got multiple products. Uh, the next one is actually uh, the, the product that I would have liked to have created in the beginning, but in the formation of a business, you have to do things in a particular order. Um, so we have a, we have a complete plant-based meal replacement. And now we also have a sole source liquid diet. So in Canada's guidelines, um, it's very specific what those things need to look like. And the reason that they're so highly processed and so full of synthetics is because of the way we design food and the way that we've um, adopted a, a style of fortification of food. So if you think back to the days of Wonder Bread, Everybody knows it's like, you look at it now, a loaf of Wonder Bread, the joke was you could squeeze it down and put it in a teacup, but it was fortified with iron. So it's good for you, right? This was, that was the advent of synthetic isolate additives. The other thing about synthetics is that you can patent them and then you can sell them, but it's pretty hard to patent a leaf of spinach and spinach has got lots of naturally occurring iron in it. 
But the other problem with spinach is, is how do you measure a leaf of spinach? A doctor will never prescribe spinach. Um, they'll prescribe an iron supplement. See, so this was the ch this was the challenge that I had faced. So we had this really stringent set of guidelines around meal replacements and um, sole source liquid diet, which is something that you can live on full time through a feeding tube or even orally. Ours is an oral product. Um, but our real innovation is that we've been able to hit those criterial markers with a 100% food-based formulation. We've actually been able to compound food more like medicine so that we can remove the need for synthetic isolate additives and turn what was designed to be something that was giving people a level of subsistence into actually something that's an optimal form of nutrition. And my intention was to do this for sick people, but the interesting thing is that a lot of the early adopters of this product are people who are extremely health conscious. They're people who realize that they want their nutrient density to come not from a synthetic isolate, but to actually come from nature. And it's all available to us. Um, but when, you know, you get into the idea of food is medicine, um, a lot of people just don't understand what it is that they need to eat. And that's, a, you know, I mean, not everybody's a nutritionist, not everybody's a dietitian, not everybody's a food scientist, not everybody, you know what I mean, has a, a degree in, in, in biology to understand, well, what is it that our physiology deserves to have? Um, but it can be done in a better way. It can, we can go back to um, nature to take current innovation and actually give, um, you know, people, uh, practitioners, caregivers, um, the an alternative to the way we've evolved our food. And that's science, right? That's uh, being able to grow food in a particular way, being able to turn it into a powder, be able to test it for its nutritional values, create consistency in that, in that process, and then actually take these things and blend them in, in a way that allows you to have this um, full bandwidth of nutrition and not having to add anything synthetic. But guess what? It costs more and it, it takes a lot of work and someone has to care to do it. And so we're literally the, the first and only company to ever meet those guidelines with a 100% food-based formulation. But it took a year and a half to formulate the first product. So it's, it's, it, it, it opened my eyes to what's, what's going on with food, not just for sick people, but for all of us, right? Um, you know, the percentages of people, I believe it's in the 90, 90th percentile of people in North America that are in a state of um, uh, malnutrition for nutrient-dense food. They just aren't getting enough micronutrients from what they're eating to support health. So if you look at diabetes, if you look at heart disease, if you look at cancers, if you look at neurologicals, if you look at autoimmune diseases, a lot of them are representative, in my opinion, of what we're missing in the, in the form of these, these nutritional components, but also what we're exposed to in our environment and then what we're actually given to eat. So my goal through this is not only to produce products that are done and built with this innovation, um, but also to move more in the direction of growing in a particular way that ensures that the, if we want to have a clean body, our food has to be clean. There's a really, um, it's becoming, I think, a little bit more, the, the, the world is becoming a little bit more aware to the idea of forever chemicals. Um, 
But if you actually map the amount of chronic illness against the amount of contamination that we've put in the planet, there's some pretty interesting kind of spikes that kind of follow each other, right? And sadly, um, we are the air, the water, and the land because that's what we consume. So anything that we put into our environment ends up in our bodies. And um, so, yeah, so there's some, so there's some exciting stuff on the horizon for me with my business. If I, if I look at these products, they're the, the tip of the spear and, and, and the inspiration to meet these criterial requirements for these extremely high uh, expectations with products like a meal replacement and a soul source liquid diet has just simply inspired me to go, okay, well, how can I do it better? And the better way to do it is actually to control the grow environment, to start looking to science, to start looking to closed loop ecosystems. You know, I, I, one of my partners works with a company uh, called Cubic Farms. I'm going to give them a plug um, where they actually grow in container systems. Um, and what I think people don't understand is, is that a, a one acre container farm can yield the same amount of, of uh, vegetation as a 50 acre farm. They use one tenth of the water. And the truth is, is that you can grow in them year round. So you're actually using one acre to create the same yield, but you can do that over and over and over again. Right. And so the solutions for our food problems aren't there. They're just underfunded. They're, they're, they're kind of like ALS. They're just being ignored. So really inside of my goal with my products is to actually start partnering with these types of companies and to, to, to work with them to control the grow even to the next level. So if you control the seed, you control the grow medium, you control the light and the temperature and all of these, these different things, you're going to get the, almost the exact same nutritional values every single time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now I can truly call, now I can truly call that leaf of spinach medicine. Cause I know how much iron's in it. I can powder it. I can compound with it. I can build baseline formulations that allow other people to put this into their food and we displace the need for synthetics. But at the same time, we're taking the pressure off the water. We're taking the pressure off the air and we're giving the soil a chance to heal. So there's a real holistic expansive process that's happened in my brain from, um, start of just wanting to make sure that somebody I loved had healthy food to now realizing that this is something that can truly be impactful and make a difference and hopefully inspire more people to put the dots together. Um, and whether it's disease states like ALS, um, have the knowledge and the wherefore to put their resources into things that will truly make a difference inside of their lifetime, but also be completely okay with the idea that it, it might take more than one. You know, this could be a generational legacy for my son and my family or my friends or whoever else gets involved in these types of businesses. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm on a bit of a run there, but I, I, I just think that, you know, um, when we open our eyes and we look at the challenges that have come into our lives and we ask ourselves the question, why? not from the perspective of life is happening to me, but life is happening for me. Like these things are showing up for a reason. Oftentimes I think what we find is meaningful, challenging processes and opportunities to really feel like we've made a difference in our life. That we're actually being set up to participate in things that um, 
not only our, our love for other people, but our love for ourselves, you know? And if I, if I lean back into even, you know, the conversation in 256 with Eric, their, their bid to educate people to neuron and, and, and how delays can be created in, in the FDA around approval for, for treatments and how many people are suffering. Like none of it makes sense. None of it. So what can you do with that challenge? And that's what they they decided to do, right? Was was educate and and make people aware, and and I think that even goes for what you're doing, James, with your podcast. You have information that you know people deserve to have, and it's really hard to forget. Yeah, once you yeah. heard it, absolutely. Once the, you've heard the it, the seed is sown. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I want to thank you, you know, f- for sharing that. I think I agree with you 100 percent with the linear relationship between disease and what we've done to our air, our soil, our food. You know, and you know, as a firefighter, the insanity that there are farmers wearing hazmat suits, spraying chemicals that is then going to be turned into baby food. And we're wondering why we have this cancer issue, that this food-like substances that they sell in a lot of these restaurants or in the middle aisles of stores you know, aligns perfectly with the diabetic and obesity epidemic that we've seen. And so, and then you look at what we do often feed our patients in hospitals. And, you know, aside from maybe supposedly a cardiac diet, everyone else gets, you know, sandwich, bag of chips, chocolate bar, whatever it is. And this is the time where we're supposed to be asking the body, you know, hey, I need you to heal. I need you to, you know, everyone needs to be all in, but here's some really shit fuel while you're at it. So it makes sense on so many levels. And I, truly believe it's not even belief like it's been proven over and over again that on the other side of that that you can reverse so many diseases obesity you know diabetes hypertension you know the the potential for strokes i mean all these things i mean this whole covid fucking nightmare has been ultimately based on the can't spit the word out now the just heartbreaking ill health of so many developed countries and COVID yeah. is just the a giant comorbidities. Mirror. Yes. Yeah. You're talking about the comorbidities associated with the society that we've indoctrinated into a belief that food has nothing to do with your health yeah. when it has everything to do with your health. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so bringing this solution and bringing the micronutrients that we need, bringing them in a clean way, you know, in a way that's healing, not, not further insulting the body. I mean, it makes sense to the patient. You know, I mean, certainly with the obesity epidemic, my God, if we if we actually got everyone fit and healthy or as many as we could, imagine the resources and money that would free up for pediatric, pediatric cancer, for ALS, for trauma medicine, for all these things that, you know, truly are, as of today, unpreventable. You know, we could we could pour those resources in there. So I think it's incredible what you've done. So for, if you want to learn more and they want to want to learn, you know, how to purchase it, maybe look into it if they're in a hospital or a clinic, where are the best places to go? Um, well, I mean, online right now is, is probably the best way to get educated or connected to us. Um, our website is uh, usaheelandameal.com or just healandameal.com. It, it, that's the Canadian and U.S. sites. The Canadian one will redirect you to the U.S. site. Um, but like what's been really interesting for me, uh, James, and what I I really want to touch on is, you know, as somebody who's had, uh, fitness be a part of their life, you know, I I consider myself a tactical athlete. We talked about this a little bit. Um, I own a CrossFit gym. 
I've, I've seen the value of some form of exercise in my life the entire time that I've, I've uh, been doing the things that I'm doing all the way back to, you know, that, those first days of wrestling and um, stepping into a, a physical job like uh, search and rescue uh, is that, you know, uh, the other side of that really is the nutritional piece. And so to create something like heal and then start to realize that, Hey, you know what? There's absolutely no difference between a sick person and a healthy person. And people are like, well, what are you talking about? They're sick. They're healthy. Yeah. But the biology is the exact same thing. So do we feed our high level athletes boost and ensure? Absolutely not. Why not? Why not? Oh, because I'm it, curious, they, why? Wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to perform well and they wouldn't be able to, you know, get to the Super Bowl. That's important. Well, but this is it. So, so, so <laughs> let me think about that. So what you're telling me is that an athlete who's going to perform in the Super Bowl deserves optimal nutrition to support the exact same biology, which supports, and I'm be very clear with my terminology, their physiology that is supported by neurology. So in other words, if you aren't making sure that your body has the micronutrients, potassium, magnesium, you know, salts, all the things that are required for brain and organ function, selenium, you know, calcium, all of this micronutrition, you can have the most um, built body. I can build my body with macros, with the fats, proteins, and carbs, but performance actually comes from the micros. It comes from the micronutrition. So brain and organ function and neurology is in an optimal way is supported by those types of foods. So when you take that away, what happens to the athlete? Their performance dwindles. Yeah. So, I mean, go back as, as far as something as simple as Gatorade, realize that if you don't have salt, you're not going to function. You're going to, your, your muscles will turn off. You'll cramp. You can't perform the same way. We realized this way back when they started Gatorade. Well, we're way smarter now when it comes to biology and physiology and how those things impact performance and health. What we've done, though, is somewhere along the line, we've decided that, that performance and health are two different things, but they're not. They're the exact same thing. And so although the person who has a biology of, of, a, of, a, of a football player or, or, or an athlete and is getting that nutrition to support performance, the performance that they want to support is the Super Bowl, right? Well, the performance of the biology of the sick person is healing but they need the exact same things to heal that they need to perform. It's on a sliding scale. So if I was to explain to somebody um, the importance of selenium as a precursor to glutathione, which is a super antioxidant that lives on both sides of the blood brain barrier. And if you don't have glutathione in your central nervous system, that you can actually have a complete collapse of your central nervous system because you succumb to the environmental toxins that are in our environment because glutathione actually protects your central nervous system from those things. Where do you get selenium? There's a lot of people that are missing selenium in their diet. So, you know, what is, what is a neurological? What is an autoimmune disease? What, what are all of these chronic diseases? What are these cancers? What are they actually coming from? In my opinion, is the fact that we're not giving our body the precursors they need to make their own medicine. And so, Healthy people are given the best. Sick people are given the worst, but they're the exact same person. So think about your sick person as the performance athlete. Give them the best, cleanest, healthiest food you possibly can. 
find sources that you can trust. What I did with Heal was I just wanted it to be easy for people, man. I did a lot of thinking. I did a lot of grocery shopping. I did a lot of blending. You know, there's stuff that's in Heal that comes from all over the world. Nobody could make it at home with a blender. Like it's just not right. So for for a sick person, for a plant-based person, for uh, a health conscious person, for an elderly person, for the athlete, it's all the same thing. It's a baseline of nutrition to support optimal health and healing. Performance is a piece of, of that. Performing in healing and performing in sport or whatever activity or function that you, you, and, and longevity. How, you know, why did your grandpa make it to 99? Like there's, there's, there's things that impact and, and opportunities for us to ensure that we have health and longevity. Um, but it's about keeping your body clean and it's about making sure that it has all the nutrients it needs to make its own medicine. It doesn't have to come off a pharmacy shelf. I'm not a, 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 a the, the, to be clear, I am not anti-medicine, but I'm like you. If 85% of the stuff out there could be changed simply by educating people to what they're eating, how much they're sleeping, and their activity level, and we took the pressure off the medical system that's being sucked up by the, the majority of these things that can be quickly changed through, through choice and education, now we have the resources to really put into medicines and treatments in the support of sick people. But we've created this definable difference or this line that you treat sick people with medicine and food has nothing to do with it. But yet we're going to feed our optimal athletes the best food because we've tied food and nutrition to performance. We have to break that wall down. Does yeah. that make sense? No, we it really does. Have to, I love that analogy. We have to redefine that. We have to redefine it because there's absolutely nothing, no difference between a sick person and a healthy person. And when someone gets on and goes, well, I'm following this protocol or this person was able to reverse this disease or they got healthier when they started eating all of this stuff. Well, duh. Duh. I'm sorry. Like, it doesn't have to be some super fancy specific protocol. You just want to make sure that you're giving your body copious amounts of nutritiously dense food. It's not about what you have to avoid in your diet. It's, it's about displacing it. You don't have room for cheeseburgers and pizza and, you know, highly processed junk when you're filling your belly full of, you know, salads and lean meats and healthy alternatives. You just aren't. But we also live in a world where those things are not readily available. So I look at it and go, man, something like Heal, like I've actually just uh, had an order placed by an organization in, the, in New York City. They have one of the largest food pantries in the city. They serve 15,000 families a month. They just bought Heal so they can give it away to people because they know that particularly lower income and inner city people, it's like a food desert. You can't find produce. So here we've got this thing that has got two years of shelf stability. It's 100% plant-based, right? It's not processed. It's just freeze-dried plants powdered and put into a, into a formulation backed by science. I'm not plugging myself here. I'm just saying, like, it's that easy. Like, we can make sure that we get a baseline of nutrition without having to think too hard, without having to change our lifestyle too much. You know, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I eat pizza. I'll have a hamburger every once in a while. You know what it's like to eat at the fire hall? Yes, very much but so. I get, but I get 12 servings of fruits and vegetables every day because I take 
three servings of heel. Now, what does that look like? Is that is it a shake or how how does it you know? Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about it. Basically, if you think about the the typical person's two a scoop of protein powder into a shaker cup and shake it up, what heel is is it's actually about thirty seven ingredients, most of which are freeze dried that have been blended together inside of a, a particular way, so that um, we're taking like say the beets that are freeze dried on, on on site. Nothing's removed; it's just turned into a powder. When you remove water from anything, you remove the oxidative process of, of water. So water is actually there to give life, but it's also the thing that turns us back into dirt, right? So when you pick the flower, it's super beautiful, but inside of a, a, a period of time, it starts to wilt and die. Water is actually the thing that's oxidizing and breaking down that plant, right? So when you pull water out of something that's been picked, you actually stop that process from happening. And over time, if you think about that leaf of spinach again, if I, if I pick that out of the ground and it takes a week to get from um, the, the farmer's field to my crisper, right? there's been a week of oxid- oxidation happening. They, they slow it down with, with refrigeration. But the point is, is that that plant has already started to decompose. And then inside of another week, what's it look like in my fridge? It's wilting. It's all wilted. It's turned to water. I'm not going to eat it. It's not palatable. Go back to the field, pick the leaf of spinach, freeze dry it, remove all the water, and every bit of nutritional density that was in that in that leaf is now preserved in that powder. And that powder can last a long time. So heel is basically a powder format, not whole dissimilar to what you'd see in a, a jug of protein powder. Um, but it's all of these ingredients coming together that create, you know, a balance of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. And on average, let's say it's about 30 to 35% of all of your nutritional requirements for the day, which would probably move most of the people to the top 75 percentile in the United States, just with one serving of heel a day, because they just don't get the nutritional density um, in their food. Um, And it tastes like berries. It's like, it's, it's super cool to take something that's just coming from nature and just build on that. We haven't added any artificial flavors. Um, and most people who find it, like I, like I said, I've got a CrossFit gym. Um, I've got maybe a hundred members and I go through probably four cases of, of heal a month because people who are, are health focused, they see the value of, you know, getting their vitamins from real food. They see the value of getting a meal that's these balance of fats, proteins, and carbs. And then it's got all the pre and probiotic to support gut health. So a lot of thought has gone into it, but it's for me, it just touches my heart to see um, proactive people seeing the value of it, health conscious people seeing the value of it. Um, the numbers of people who have contacted me and said, Hey, I want to get a tub of heel because of my sick grandma. And they're trying to give her a booster insurer. And I'd, I'd much rather have this. So, you know, you get this healthy person advocating for the the, 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 maybe the not, um, healthy person or the person who can't advocate for themselves right through to the interest now that we're getting, um, to see it get into more of a, uh, on the medical side, uh, and, and in some cases supported by, um, insurance and these things so that people can have that alternative and it not even cost them anything. Like that's really one of my goals, um, particularly with the sole source, that's something I can actually get covered by medical. So. I'm committed, man. I, I'm, I know, you know, we're brothers, right? We're both firefighters. 
And uh, that that's a, a career that's obviously been very fruitful and, and been a basis of support um, for the majority of my adult life. Um, but the big difference is, is one is a, a reactive way of helping people. And what I'm doing now is a very proactive way of, of helping people and uh, is very much tied to my family and um, you know, it's a life's work now. So it's like, I can't see myself ever stopping. So tremendous amount of gratitude to you, man. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share all of that stuff. No, well, I want to, I mean, it's, it's been amazing, mate. I want to get some few closing questions before I let you go. Oh, sure. But, no, but course, I mean, to hear course. the whole story now, to hear where it came from, to hear, you know, what, what, what were the alternatives versus what's available now, to hear the comparison between an athlete versus a patient. I mean, they're all very powerful perspectives. They all align with, you know, what I talk about on here all the time. But, you, you know, the accessibility um, and the ease, which let's be honest, you know, a lot of people are busy, a lot of people are riding rigs for 24 hours a day or, you know, like you said, right now in COVID, you know, there's people locked down in nursing homes. And what a great way to, to, to put some good nutrition, even if, you know, genuine, like, you know, shipments of groceries or whatever can't make it there. So uh, the the options, the, uh, the the potential of all the different groups that this could reach, I think is fantastic. So, you know, I applaud you for, for taking tragedy and turning it into something you know and linda's legacy yeah well i just i want to touch on that real quick because i think that i've seen this happen to people you know we're we're living in a world of really really smart people finding a platform on social media and they're really really good at explaining the problems i think ted talks is actually another really great example of this kind of pre you know podcasting and social media where people with, with real opportunity influence are really great at articulating what the problem is, but how many of them are providing the solution at the end of that conversation? Yeah. So I talk about sleep deprivation in the fire service. No one's talking about addressing the shifts, but yeah, we're sleep deprived. All right. Bye. Instead of, yeah, maybe we should invest in another shift so we can give our men and women more time off between the shifts. So this is what I'm saying. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of going, okay, I love that you can articulate the problem. You can identify this category of, 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 of educating me. But at the same time, instead of driving fear that's going to populate some viral spread of my, my viral fear-based podcast or, or conversation, how about a solution that people have the opportunity to choose? And I, and I truly would want to let everybody understand I'm not here banging my fist going, this is what you have to do. I really don't give a shit what anybody chooses. It's not my right to tell somebody what else to do. But it is my responsibility to take what I've experienced and what I've learned and turning it into something that's an opportunity choice for other people. And if they do choose it, I'm here to help. If they don't want it, that's completely okay. There's all sorts of ways of thinking and doing things. I just in my life believe that if I can find a common thread between every person and I can recognize that this is a challenge that we're facing globally and there's in some way a, a little bit of difference that I could make and other people decide that that's something they want to, if I've helped one person, it was all worth it. And it started with somebody I loved and that was Linda. So um, I just, I, I you know, I've, I see so many people just kind of like, you got to do it this way and you got to follow this protocol or you got to use this thing or you got, 
no, man, everybody gets to make their own choices. They just have to have the opportunity to, to be given alternatives sometimes, particularly when there's not a lot of choices available. And I think that there's a lot of people in North America that have, are bumping up against something that they think is unique. They think it's a disease, but in truth, it's actually something that every person in North America is facing. And that's a lack of nutrient dense food. Yeah. Uh, overfed and malnourished. You nailed it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, well, I want to switch some closing questions so I can let you go. I've been chatting for over two hours and it's been amazing. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, don't apologize. I love it. Like I told you before we started recording, these are open-ended yeah. conversations and they go where they go. But I feel like we've kind of you know reached a nice rounding here. Um, the first question, is there a book that you love to recommend or books that can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated? Um, 100%. And it's going to be an unrelated book. Well, it's, it's related because I did talk a little bit about love. Um, and it's probably a book that a lot of people may or may not have heard of. It's called The Five Love Languages. Um, it's a really easy read. Um, it's an experiential book that helps you to discover what your love languages are. And there's an online test that you can go and take. You don't actually have to read the book. So if you were to Google um, five, The Five Love Languages, and the reason that I recommend it is because it was powerful in my life to understand the way that I give and receive love. And there's five primary uh, love languages, gifts, um, physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, and acts of service. Okay. So acts of service was a big love language for me with Linda. If you know me. And so understanding how you give and receive love and how another person gives and receives love um, actually allows communication to greatly improve inside of uh, interpersonal relationships. And I think whether that's personally or professionally, um, when you take a minute to look at the world through the, the, the lens of another person's eyes, and I strongly recommend people do that when they're in challenging situations with people or they're in their positions of leadership. There's lots of really great books on leadership out there. But if you don't understand what motivates a person and don't understand that the, the basal thing that motivates everybody is a desire to be loved, and you don't actually understand how to identify another person's love language and then communicate to them in that way, you might actually be creating a lot of problems for yourself that could easily be overcome with a little bit of information. So that's I recommend that book to almost everybody that asks me as a, as a, a great starting place for um I think knowledge that has a, a an opportunity impact in every aspect of our life. Beautiful. I don't know if I had that recommended or not, so I'm going to have to go online and get that one myself then. Um, yeah. All right. Well, the next question, a movie and or documentary that you love? Ooh, movie or documentary? Man, there's so many good. Uh, I, I love, I love documentaries. Um, I, I love, uh, I love entertainment period, to be honest. It's, it's a great way to, uh, to just be extremely lazy in my terminology. Sometimes you got to just turn off, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And go somewhere else. Um, great documentary. I would lean in. You know what? One that I just seen recently that, um, kind of blew my mind was called the Alpinist. I'll start with something that I just saw most recently. Um, the Alpinist is actually about a young man that's from this area. He was um, born, I believe, in Abbotsford or Chilliwack, British Columbia. And it's all about 
Um, if you've seen Free Solo, yeah, you know who he is, right? Yeah, Alex. Like, he actually, yeah, Alex actually calls this guy the guy. Really? That just nobody knew about. You you got to watch The Alpinist. Uh, it's on Netflix right now, and basically, if Alex is free soloing um, rock. This guy's free soloing ice, rock, everything. It's unbelievable. I got to so, watch that. Anyways, yeah. Entertainment and a glimpse into a different way of living for sure. I think those guys have a completely different type of brain wiring. Um, but yeah, no, great, great movie. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I haven't heard that one either. Um, yeah. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military or associated professions? Have you heard about any of the flooding that's going on in British Columbia right now? Um, I had, yeah. Okay, so I think a, a, a friend of mine that, um, that might be a really interesting guest to have on, is his name is Brad Gaudette. Um, he was previously the training chief for my fire department. He actually got hired about a year or so after me. And he now, he left our fire department to become the um, deputy chief of the Abbotsford Fire Department a week before the floods happened. Oh, wow. So he's now been basically parachuted into running the entire EOC for that event. So, um, yeah, just a really, really cool guy devoted to, to fire service, but somebody that now has gone from, you know, the day-to-day -day firefighting to dealing with something that has been recognized as a, a provincial disaster. Um, he might be a, an interesting guy to talk to for you, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Happy, Thank to, you. happy to help you make that connection. Beautiful. Yeah. Let's make it Super happen. Bright. And he was our training, like I said, he was our training officer. So from the, the, the point of helping people to understand the value of training and the different styles, um, he would be a really, really interesting conversation for you. Yeah. Well, especially with the Swift Water stuff. And like you said, with you being a progressive department, I'm sure it would be, you know, Yeah, valuable. he was a huge, huge piece of it. Huge piece of it. Yeah, we couldn't have done it without Brad. All right. Sure. Let's make it happen yeah. then. Thank you. Awesome, man. The very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress? Oh, well, I would totally have to say that the one thing that allows me to decompress and clear my mind is exercise. Um, if I look at the time taking care of Linda um, and the amount of stress that that had on me mentally, emotionally, and physically, uh, through that whole time, I continued to train CrossFit. And the thing that people may or may not understand about things that are physically challenging, I'm not, I'm not, I guess I'm not talking about going into the gym and just lifting some weights. I'm, I'm talking about something that's actually putting you in a, a position of having to be extremely present. So when you're walking on your hands, you have to be there. You're not thinking about anything else. When you're rolling jujitsu with a guy, you're not thinking about what I'm going to do next Tuesday on my, my day off or what's going on in my business. You're, you're, you're in a combat scenario that, that brings you into a present moment. And I find that present moment things that draw you into a present moment, whether that's yoga, whether that's, um, you know, CrossFit or some sort of physical confrontation based martial art, um, or, you know, even something that's challenging in the outdoors, like a really technical hike, um, these kinds of things. Um, those really, really put you in a perspective of being present that allows everything else to somewhat wash away. And at the end of it, 
leaves you feeling not like it's gone, but because that pressure was taken off for a period of time, it allows you to refresh. And even though you might be physically exhausted, mentally and emotionally, you're recharged. I strongly, strongly recommend it. Love it. Yeah. The only thing, the only caveat that I noticed in myself, and this was actually from some of the guests telling me about this element too, is, is coming off shift, having a high level of stress and then choosing the wrong kind of workout. So mm. for example, you know, you, you come off shift and now it's like Fran that morning, you know, and then yeah. you're adding stress to stress versus identifying, okay, today would be a great day to go in, but let me just move. Let me just sweat. Let me just, you know, get get the blood pumping and clear out some of the some of the negative uh, hormones that are coursing through my veins but then the next day like you said going in there once you've had a good night's sleep and then and then you know really go into that that dark place and and uh you know refinding that that baseline as you said yeah it's a it's a it's just a distraction from your monkey brain right just allowing you to be very present I mean, at the same time, I'd also prescribe infrared sauna. I do that about three or four times a week. I have one in my home. Um, and that's actually a place where I can think, but I'm, I'm, I'm in a relaxed state. So the, the sauna puts my physicality into a relaxed state. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure people listening, um, you know, are fascinated not only with the product itself, with the story behind it. You've got some pretty amazing people involved in the company. So let's just kind of revisit the websites and then where else can people find you online, whether it's social media or other areas? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I mean, obviously I'm on Instagram. Um, I just go by my name, um, at Paul uh, underscore Tilla. Um, and then we've also got um, at Heal and Emil com is our is our or at heal and Emil, i should say is our instagram for uh for the company um and then our website again is uh heal and meal.com so uh, that'll redirect to us or canada and there's some there's some good information on there for sure um love the follow love the love any questions um you know obviously the opportunity to be on on your podcast is great i'm 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 making myself available to that. I, I think this is a story that's ready to be told. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the opportunity to be approached to um, share that in, in, in other people's platforms is something I'm very open to as well. So I could be reached um, for that. And I'm in the, in the, in the mix, I, I might lean into you, James, of starting my own podcast called Healing Everything. Um, because I really do believe that healing isn't, isn't about one thing and it's it's not just even just about people it's about us just having a new way of thinking around um how we interact with the world and uh some of the things that uh super cool people are doing right now i'm, I'm very solutions based i want to hear about all those amazing solutions so um that'll be a future endeavor for me so at healing everything is a, a instagram account i've created to start to to build that platform out so Brilliant. Well, with the podcast, yeah, let me know. I will, I will gladly, you know, tell you all the lessons that I've learned and the things that I use. And, you know, there may be better things out there now, but it's worked for five years. So, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I appreciate it, man. And again, I'm, I'm completely honored and, uh, I don't, I don't take other people's time lightly. Um, I truly see our time as a gift. Nobody owes anybody anything. And so when you do take the time to share it, um, I see it as a gift and I'm, and I'm grateful for you and I'm, I'm grateful obviously for the introduction from Seb and, 
Um, look forward to perhaps chatting again. Yeah.